0: Good afternoon brethren I brought my clock I didn't know there was, there was one here perhaps there's a trapdoor I don't know a pleasure to be here uh, for the ordinations um, mr. Tabor will be I don't know if it's been announced uh, I hope I don't not jump in the gun but he'll be moving to Indianapolis and serving our brethren in that area and I'll have the pleasure of working with him and Laura Denny is someone I've known from the years back of Cincinnati, her father and her service in God's church there. So it was a pleasure for my wife and I to be here for this special occasion for the two of them and to be with you. If you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, I will start reading in verse 1. John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. He goes on to write in verse 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I'd like to explain first, brethren, how we teach and explain this scripture because I think it's very important to understand the foundation. But as we go forward, I'm also going to address another aspect of this, which will be the focus of today's message and why it's important what John writes, not only in the physical fact that Christ had come in the flesh, but brethren also because in the Scripture it's very clear that the implication and the statement here is of Christ coming in our lives, being a part of us, and working in our life, preparing us for God's kingdom. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, you might just keep your finger here in John, we'll come back to it. In Romans chapter eight and verse nine, Paul wrote, verse eight, he said, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And so the Bible very plainly speaks in many places, this is simply a very clear statement, that the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God dwell in God's servants. It goes on to say in verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And that righteousness, of course, is first in God and through forgiveness, but also in our conduct as we strive to be God's servants. Now going back to 1 John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, You are of the world, therefore they speak, or excuse me, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Or is he speaking of the world itself? We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there's discernment given through God's spirit. It goes on in verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Christ is the Son of God, God abides in him. And so it's very clear in the context, not just in the language, because it's also implied there. But it's very clear in the context that John is addressing that Christ has come in us, in our flesh. We're human beings. We're flesh and blood. And so two things are stated. One is that Christ himself came in the flesh and that the Spirit of Christ dwells in our flesh, having received God's Spirit by promise at the time of baptism. I'm going to focus somewhat today on Christ in the flesh, his personal ministry and life, and the implication of that, and why it's so important, because actually both are expressed here. And at the time John wrote this, there were those who denied Christ actually being in the flesh. Now, why is it important to us? I'm going to jump a little bit ahead so you get a picture of where I'm going, and hopefully draw pieces together as we go forward. In Hebrews chapter 2, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, Paul is writing about Jesus Christ. And I will come later back to this chapter, but I'd like to point out to you a focus that he has in the early chapters. In verse 6 of chapter 2, He speaks of a testimony in the Scripture. He says, One testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. He's talking about a statement also made in the book of Genesis, but it's expounded upon here in Genesis chapter 1. But it actually, when you compare, you realize that it was taken from Psalms actually expounds upon that somewhat. Paul goes a degree further, in fact much further. He says, continuing, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now what is he speaking about? He's speaking about our salvation. That we do not neglect the salvation that God's afforded and given to us the opportunity to, in a sense, embrace. By accepting him and following a way of life that prepares us for his family. And that's brought out earlier in this chapter. I need not read it. I think you will see it very plainly stated. But I want to read to you verse 9 because the focus of this message as we go forward is as I have read and studied God's Word and at times been challenged. Uh, The church was challenged a number of years ago by those who began to teach the topic of the nature of God. And a part of that challenge I think is very important to understand not only has to do in a sense of understanding a concept that is taught, that does not come from the Scripture, but actually that very concept undermines God's very purpose and plan that He has for each of us. That we would be a part of His very family. That we, in fact, would be members of the God family. And as Paul addresses this, he makes a statement that I would like to, perhaps you wish to use it as a title, He mentions all of these things of what is man, that you are mindful of him. And then in verse 9 he says, but we see Jesus. And that's what John addressed. John was saying that those who were of God, they saw, they understood, they knew the real Jesus. And they knew that he was flesh and blood. Now please understand at this time there were thoughts going around and people would adopted or used the name of Christ who did not believe that if you were to do some historical study of what was going on at this time of those who were a part of a different religious system different ideas and then took on the name of Christ you'll find it was quite a large group of people they're not easily identified in a very specific way because they literally were all over the map and their ideas. Historically, they're referred to as Gnostics. Now the word Gnostic actually has to do with knowledge. But they believed that they had superior knowledge or a revelation that involved the spirit world and life and salvation or the purpose of life. They actually adopted in many ways some of the tenements of Christ, the name, the ideas, but they did not let go of or let loose of their own ideas of the spirit world. A central idea they had was that Christ was spirit and he simply appeared in the flesh. You might think, well, why and how did they come to think this way? What attracted them? I've read various articles and Encyclopedia Britannica and so on about this. But in reading it and thinking about it, I think the answer really comes from the Scripture. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I think it's very, if you think about it, rather obvious. Because Christ lived, died, was resurrected, and then what did he do? He appeared on a number of occasions physically to his disciples. The Bible says at one time, over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. You can read that in the book of Corinthians. If an event like that took place at that time, without question, the word of that spread. And so the very thing that Gnosticism already, in a sense, taught and believed Although they had many different variations that was central suddenly here in their midst was a report of a spiritual leader that many followed there were many who baptized and received that promise of God's spirit there was a great excitement that was a part of the world at that time it literally if you look back in history changed the entire roman empire Historically, the nation of Egypt, which was not a Christian nation by the end of the century, was. Now, were they true Christians? I don't know, but I suspect among them many were. But many adopted the name. So here's something that's sweeping their culture. But the physical report of that, if you looked at it carnally, was of a man who appeared in the flesh, who now was reported to have been resurrected as a spirit, and again appears in the flesh. And when you understand the concepts of Gnosticism, I think it's evident that was a great draw and attraction. There was a lot in common in their thinking. Now, you can find, of course, those passages, and I'll not turn to them, in John 20, Mark 16, Luke 24, you find Christ appeared in different ways. In the book of Luke, it actually says, in another form. One time he appeared in a room and suddenly his disciples saw it. It was a spirit because how did he enter? Another occasion he simply was in their presence and then he vanished. Those reports, that going out, I don't think is drawing uh, much of a stretch to realize that had to be an attraction to people who already had ideas. They pre-existed Jesus. They pre-existed The New Testament, that there was a spirit world, and of that world, there were those who would appear to men. Now, with that religion, and I'll just, a brief quote so you get a picture of it, because I wish to go with, what did that lead to? Well, in the 11th edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, a very simple statement is made regarding Gnosticism. It said, and I take out of a longer sentence, says a religion of sacraments and mysteries. Because many of the ideas that were part of Gnosticism, even though the early Christian writers that we would think of in terms of this world, Augustine and others, they fought the ideas. The reality is, looking back, they also adopted many of the thoughts and concepts that were part not of the scripture, but of Gnosticism. For instance, the idea that the materialistic world, that which is of the flesh, is evil, and that which is of the spirit is good. And so good and evil were identified not by character or conduct, but simply by the manner in which it appeared. And so such things as relationship and marriage was viewed as evil, Uh, something of what could be considered spiritual, uh, by this very nature, then it was considered good. And, of course, these people uh, felt they had a superior knowledge because such things had been revealed to them. If you look in the Bible, and I'll point out occasionally, there's very strong evidence that God's servants had to deal with this. Obviously, in 1 John, I think that's part of a very direct reference of what uh, John is writing about. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, the actual word gnosis or knowledge is used by Paul as he writes to Timothy. In verse 20 he says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And so they accepted Christ's name, but they taught the ideas that they had previously in their faith and their beliefs and that they shared among each other and often debated. About 20 years ago, all of us were challenged with I received a book in the mail. You did too. Probably many of you that were part of the Worldwide Church of God. The title of it was God is dot, dot, dot. I'd like to explain to you, starting here, what dot, dot, dot actually represents. Because most of the time, if you speak of the subject of the Trinity, uh, we think of it in a definition that certainly is a part of the common thinking. But I have here, uh, and I was taught from this as uh, a youth. I grew up Catholic, attended uh, Catholic school when it was available. My father was in the Navy. I went to first grade, second grade, uh, part of third grade uh, in the Catholic school. Uh, then we moved to Whibby Island, and Whibby Island is in the Puget Sound. It does have bridge access at one end. The island itself is about 40 miles long. My father was stationed there until the end of my sophomore year in high school. And so there was not a, a parochial school available. I began to, every Saturday go to catechism classes, and this is about junior high level. Lesson three is the unity and trinity of God. So I'm going to read, as it is presented, the material in the book. And if you ask of the trinity, it says, what do we mean by the blessed trinity? The answer, this is and it goes through the book in numerical order the answers to each question so it was presented by a question presented and a very simple direct answer to the youth that attended so the blessed trinity or by the blessed trinity we mean one and the same god in three divine persons there's a diagram i know you cannot see it a circle which represents the unity of one circle, a triangle, which in the middle of that is God in all caps, but it doesn't say Father, Son, or Jesus and Holy Spirit. It says first person, second person, and third person. And so the concept is that the three distinct and different persons which then are defined as Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one is God Almighty. Yet there are not three gods. They believe it represents one God. But please understand what's being stated. Now you think, how can that be? Well, as I was taught, can we fully understand how the three divine persons, though really distinct from one another, Are one and the same God the answer we cannot fully understand how the three divine persons though really distinct from one another are one and the same God because this is a supernatural mystery the concept of mystery a revelation that was not fully understood uh, even to my time as a youth and to the present is very much a part of the thinking that rubbed off and became a part of mainstream Christianity. The next question is, what is a supernatural mystery? A supernatural mystery is a truth which we cannot fully understand, but which we firmly believe because we have God's word for it. That's interesting to think about because there are things in God's church, brethren, we do not fully understand. But what is not correct in this statement is we have God's word for it. Because God's word is right here. But please understand to the Catholic Church, that is not the complete completeness of the word of God. Their concept and authority does not limit itself to the scripture. It includes the office of the papacy and it includes the traditions of the church and they view them in equal standing. When the concept was introduced in the Worldwide Church of God, it caused a lot of doubt. People began to find they were being asked questions they'd never thought about. And things were stated that actually, I know as a minister, I personally never taught. You know, the concept we could not be God as God is God. We never taught that because we never taught that we would be the father or the son. We always understood we would be God's children. Many of the things were very easily answered. Jesus, when resurrected, said, I go to my God and your God. He worshipped his father. The relationship the Bible very clearly defines. Our relationship is also defined. But nevertheless, it caused many to doubt. It caused many to lose sight of the fact that in the Scripture we see Jesus. Now, let's answer another question that I'd like to bring up. Because when you speak of Christ, the birth of Christ presents a difficult problem in some of the Catholic reasoning. Now, let me explain why. Why? Because see, the flesh is evil. And in the flesh, in their concept, lies original sin. And how could Christ be without sin if he was born with original sin? And so the concept and the understanding grew of immaculate conception. Now please understand that concept is not of Mary's conception or her conception of Christ in her womb. It actually is of her mother who conceived Mary. Many Catholics do not understand that, but that is what the doctrine is. And therefore, Mary herself was born without sin. Now, why do I introduce that at this point? Well, we understand and look and realize the Catholic Church, in a way, uh, views Mary, uh, literally, as being in God's throne. So let me read from you in Lesson 14 of the Bottlemore Catechism, The Resurrection and Life Everlasting. The question, this is 76 in the sequence through the publication, what is meant by the resurrection of the body? By the resurrection of the body is meant that at the end of the world, the bodies of all men will rise from the earth and be united together again to their souls, never more to be separated. Why will the bodies of the just rise? The bodies of the just will rise to share forever in the glory of their souls. The soul, in their concept and understanding, does not die. Now, If you think of Christ as flesh, subject to death, having died for our sins, I think all of us, and I remember even as a youth, I asked a question. And I did not do it alone. I had classmates. It was something that would come up. It would frustrate our instructor. And we always received the same answer I read to earlier. It's a supernatural mystery. And after a while, I figured out it's a supernatural mystery. I'm not meant to understand. And I went on. goes on in this lesson. Has the body of any human person ever been raised from the dead and taken into heaven? By the special privilege of her assumption, the body of the Blessed Virgin Mary, united to her immaculate soul, was glorified and taken into heaven. So the very thought and concept of worship or praying to Mary and their reasoning and thought Literally has a foundation that she was without sin; that she was taken by God's very special blessing directly to heaven. Verse 79: The question every youth would wonder, "Will the bodies of the damned also rise?" The bodies of the damned will also rise to share in the eternal punishment of their souls. So the reason to resurrect the body is to share whether it be in the joy or the punishment of the soul. I'm not here to preach Catholic doctrine. I want you to have a basic understanding of concepts that John addresses, concepts that at times today people deal with, and also with this brethren, some of the modern thinking that's going on, because in a Protestant community, people accepted Catholic teachings. But as we learn more about human life, many began to depart from that. And the reason is, as we began to understand birth, we realized that in reality, the blood of the mother is not in contact with the child. When a child is conceived, it receives DNA from its father, and then the DNA of the sperm, and they're an equal portion. That, of course, impregnates the egg. The the embryo begins to develop. The blood of the child then is developed of the own elements as that embryo begins to grow. And so the blood of the child is never directly the blood of the mother. I have read, and I'm Frankly, I'll just be honest, I have read different sources and I find today it's very difficult to find anyone directly answering the question because initially, please understand this is a religious topic to many, it's not just a medical topic, the claim was that all of the elements of the blood of a child came from the sperm, and I read that at various times in years past, I recently went and did an internet search and I spent some time I could not find anyone who made that specific quote medically. And I think there's a certain sensitivity in our society and the media and even on various educational sources of people's beliefs. Because in the 1940s, a medical doctor spent a great deal of time and often preached about the birth of Christ as a child. And that literally, the way he taught it was that The blood of Christ did not come from the mother. It came from the Father. Now, with the thinking that life is in the blood and the original sin is from that life source, suddenly many people began to think in a different manner. And that was that Christ did not receive. It was not a part of, in a sense, the human transition of blood because we began to understand that's not what literally happens. Now, if you wish to spend time, I did a, a number of years ago, found it fascinating. I was going to read a little bit. I'm not going to take the time. There's an incredible amount of information about how wonderfully God made us. And you can go on the Internet, and a great deal of it's there to help a mother, to help her to understand what's happening in her body and what's happening with the life that is growing within her and what is transpiring and And we're learning more and more all the time. It's not a subject where we understand everything. In fact, in recent years, we've seen things we did not think possible. All of you women who have children within your body, the evidence today indicates, you carry in a trace amount, not in a large amount, but you carry in a trace amount the DNA of your child, son or daughter. We also know from certain testing, how extensive, I don't know, but there's been reports that, for instance, if you have a certain health condition, one of those will be certain forms of cancer. There's also areas of your heart that if they begin to, in a sense, affect your health, the DNA of your child or children, if you had more than one, actually they find it moves to that area of your body. Is as if a healing in a physical sense is attempted. So we know today, we did not know back when a doctor in the 40s addressed this topic, that there is some exchange. It's very minor, but it's not through apparently the blood. It's through the feeding of the nourishment that is exchanged and the waste that is exchanged. I also came across people who keep God's Sabbath. In fact, I was rather surprised and uh, when I began to realize I did not think some thought this way. The concept that Mary was a surrogate mother. Notice that Mary carried the embryo, but it was not of her flesh. The embryo within her body had been By God's hand, placed within her as an embryo would be placed in a woman who would carry a child as a surrogate for his parents. And I was surprised by that. Because, brethren, that also denies something that's very, very important, that Christ was in the flesh, that he was flesh and blood. So I'd like to spend just a bit of time and encourage you to study the subject more thoroughly. It's not something we've written too much about. Uh, There's some aspects of it that uh, genealogies, for instance, are addressed by many people. Because in the Bible you have a genealogy of Mary. You have a genealogy of Joseph. Both are very important to the role of Christ as our Lord and Savior, as King of Kings, and the titles the Bible speaks of. A genealogy actually starts with Seth, and you'll find that when Seth was born, that Eve made a statement that she had the seed that God had promised. It was, and Abel had taken, been taken from her. And that seed, as we'll, as we go forward, briefly discuss, was also a promise given to Abraham and then to David. And so our understanding of this is really a foundation of our also understanding that we'll be God's children, that we'll be members of the very family. And that's based on the reality, brethren, in the Scripture, that what the Bible teaches is that God became flesh, and He was subject to death. And one of the interesting things in the book of Luke, and let's read this, because this was when Mary was told she would have a child. In Luke chapter 1, Verse 30 it says, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I'm reading from Luke chapter 1, now going to verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. No. The same angel said, you will conceive in your womb. He later used the same language in a Example to her of the conception of Elizabeth. Now she conceived, and a baby, as it says, was a part of her, and of course that was John the Baptist, who was a witness of Christ. You can read in verse 36, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And so the word and how it's used has directly to do with you know, human conception. This conception that we speak of here is only on the part, or that part of that life is the egg of Mary. What he says to her, because she said, I've not known a man, is the other part of that equation, and that is from the male. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, it's interesting to think about this, brethren, because Christ did not die twice. He went literally from life to life. You might say, well, how did God do that? Well, in verse 37, because I think Mary had a similar question, it said, for with God nothing will be impossible. But we also know from the scripture, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 21, but particularly verse 20, that what Christ did was foreordained. And it was foreordained before the foundations of this world. And so please, when you think about it, include the concept and understanding That is, God created man and a woman, and they are different. When he made Eve not of the dust of the ground, but of the living flesh and bone of her husband, he created her, that knowing that there would come a time, as Jesus did this as the creator, that he would become a child within the womb of his creation. And it's a fascinating to thing to think about in God's planning and what he was doing. And so what transpired, obviously, was not an afterthought. It was with forethought and planning. How did God do that? I don't know. I'm not here to answer that. I think the Scripture tells us very plainly God did it. Why is this important? Because Jesus became flesh. The promises had been given. It became very important to God's servants because they understood what it meant, the reality of it. Let's notice in the book of Acts, when Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the first sermon that was inspired by God through the Holy Spirit among his apostles, he addressed this. And in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, he said, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, He would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. This very specific language, again, the word is used as sperma. So the idea of, of a surrogate in terms of Christ is simply not what's in the Bible. What's in the Bible is that Mary conceived. We know the life source from the male portion came from God through the Spirit. We know in that Christ did not die. He literally went from life to life. And first, excuse me, in the book of Psalms, because I think it's important to read the promise and what is quoted here in Psalms 132. This is the statement of David that Peter was inspired to speak of, Psalm 132, verse 10, says, For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. And the only way that connection that could be carried out that would be the fruit of his body was in the flesh. That's why we have a genealogy in the scripture. It connectly gives us tracing all the way back to the birth of Seth. The genealogy that spoke of the seed. I'm not going to turn to it but you can read it in Genesis chapter 4. Very Later part of that chapter where Eve made that statement. You can read, and I will turn to brother, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, because the promise was also given to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, Verse 17, God said to Abraham, says, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The Bible doesn't leave any doubt. God very clearly inspired the Apostle Paul to write in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, that this is a specific and a direct prophecy and statement regarding Jesus Christ. And so the promise that was given was the promise of Christ, the Messiah. Let's notice in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and I'll read here verse 10, or 15, excuse me, starting in, uh, leading into verse 16, says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is not confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. You know, the true blessing that came from Abraham was literally the lineage and his part that led to Christ, the Savior of all. Now, the nation certainly has blessed, but we also are subject to curses. But the incredible blessing is that of this man, of his family, of his children and grandchildren and great, eventually there would be the promise of the Messiah, the Savior. What an incredible thing to know, to David to know that of his flesh as a human being would be born the Savior, God in the flesh. What an incredible thing to Mary to know that she would be the mother of the Son of God. You know, I think it's certainly wrong in how the Catholic Church looks upon Mary. But brethren, do not let what others believe in their lack of knowledge or disbelief influence what God gives us from His Word. Because she was very blessed. She conducted herself, if you read of her, whether it be in the time when Christ as a child was in the temple, she speaks of her discernment and her quiet manner. And how she knew and understood certain things, but she did, she kept them to herself. It's very interesting to start reading and thinking about how she conducted herself and know that God saw the character and the person of this young lady and made a decision that she would carry the son of God. So I don't want to put that in a wrong light, but on the other hand, brethren, we need to recognize and understand the importance of God's word. In the book of Acts and Acts chapter 13, and this is only one of many passages, Because I'd like to go forward and address how important this is. Because what it contains and what it says really is so important to each of us. We're flesh and blood. We are weak. And I know many times in God's church I've counseled with brethren, and they struggle, how am I ever going to make it into God's kingdom? But the reality is, of ourself, we're not. It's not our goodness, it's through forgiveness. It's not our righteousness, it's to the righteousness of God. And when you understand the humanity of what God did and the connection we have, it strengthens your faith. It also strengthens the knowledge and reality, brethren, that we will be God's children. I found it interesting how many people actually struggled with that in the first few years. Not so much in the global church of God at that time, but I found others who would not address the subject. I had friends in the ministry that when I brought the subject up, they hemmed and hawed. I found some who accepted some of the ideas that were put forth by the concept that were being taught of the nature of God. I know I can't speak for where they are today. I don't have that contact. but I was taken back by that. I was also taken back by so many who accepted and today who actually confess and accept the concept of the Trinity. But when you do that, what you're doing is what Mr. Armstrong always taught and made plain, is that the Trinity is a closed Godhead. And we will not be a part of that family. That's why in the book of John, John said very plainly, if you do not confess that, you are not of God. It's a spirit, it's the spirit of the antichrist. It's the spirit of deception, and it goes to one of the most fundamental things that God is doing: preparing a family. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, in verse 22, in speaking of David, it says, "When he had removed him, that is, he's speaking here now of Saul." He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. I'd like to then address something, brethren, that to me is extremely inspiring. Because we would look at this and think, well, that's about Christ's ministry. That's about when he was on the earth, he was flesh and blood. That was about the fact he died for our sins. Let me point out to you that when the book of Revelation was written, Christ was often referred to as the Lamb that the physical connection he had to David and the promises given are exactly what is brought up and the title that is used when the book of Revelation is revealed. Notice in Revelation chapter 5. Because John had a vision. It was of God. It was a revelation. And we're given that by his inspired writing. And what he saw in vision... In verse 1 of chapter 5, I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside, and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept, Much. It doesn't say here, but I think he understood because he burst out in tears and crying because of despair. Because what is contained as we go forward in Revelation is the unveiling of the fulfillment of God's plan. So he wept because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ at the right hand of His Father. Resurrected, restored to glory He had. But how is He referred to in this situation? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. You know, there's a powerful message in this chapter, brethren, because what transpires, and I'll point out part of it, but you can read all of it, is that all of God's creation accepts what God is doing. That He's going to literally bring into the spirit realm His family, His children. And as we read in the book of Hebrews, They will have responsibility over all things. Now, nothing's left out. So let's read about who who responds to this and how they respond. Verse 6, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. This is an identity that's also brought up in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. I'm talking of the time of the new heavens and new earth, and it refers to Christ as the Lamb. So there's a physical identity because Christ became the Lamb when at the time of His death as a sacrifice for our sin. So there's an identity that is not somehow a part of the past, brethren. It's a part of the future and of all eternity. It's a relationship that we will not forget. As we read on, it says, "...sit a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the world. He came, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... The twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You know, the first acceptance of this and thankfulness of it is God's people. It's our prayers. It's when we go to God in weakness, perhaps at times in despair, perhaps at times when we sinned and we thought we were beyond certain things in our life and we cry out to God. This times also brethren, we cry out for God's intervention, whether for ourselves or for brethren we love. And there are times when we put someone into God's hands. You know I, I'm a minister, I've been for many years. I've stood at the graveside of many brethren. I've loved people I've known and we commit them to God. We put them in God's hands. So all these prayers, all the things that are so important to all of us, they're brought before God's throne. It says, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. You know what John saw was an acceptance of what God was doing by those who accepted and believed in Jesus Christ. Now, in the future, and those that have preceded us. But he also goes on to describe what he also witnessed in a spiritual realm. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders and the number of them were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. What did they do? They confirmed their acceptance of what God was doing. Verse 13, And every creature was in heaven. And on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, the entire realm of God's spiritual creation, His entire creation, the galaxies and universes, I don't know, brethren, all, everything, every life form, the spirit realm, is a physical past. The blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Chapter six, verse one. Very plain what we're speaking of. Then now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. The book we're speaking of is the book of Revelation. And when a seal is opened, then that seal then, as you go through the book, you realize seal after seal leads to the seventh. And then after that follows and ends with the completion of the book, the new heavens and new earth. When the Father literally comes and we become His children in a spiritual realm. And now God's plan is complete. Let's go back to Hebrews. Because I'd like to point out to you, brethren, that God's servants addressed this many times, and sometimes I don't think we see what's being addressed. As I began to study this and go through it, I realized the concepts that they were dealing with had to do with Gnosticism, that whether some had the concept that Christ was literally a, a The human form, one of the more weird and offbeat, was a human form that extended into the clouds of the heavens, that his head towered above, but the body went down and his feet were on the earth. But if he chose to appear physically, it'd appear as a human. But that was the real Christ. Not a conception in the womb of Mary. Not a God who literally would die for our sins. So from that were all kinds of variations, and from that have come many teachings and ideas that continue to persist to our present day. Now, in addressing these topics, almost always it goes back to creation. You know, in John 1.1, it basically says right up front, Jesus Christ was eternal. Not created, I'm not going to address it, but if you look at other areas of denial, one of the very obvious denials are those that believe that there's God Almighty and he could actually destroy, at his pleasure, the Messiah. That's actually a statement made in the Quran. It's also a statement and idea of many people who have accepted the concept, not many, but some have, who keep God's Sabbath, his holy days. I know a couple individuals who are part of this concept. That Christ was created at some point that he then was created by God to carry out. But that's not what the Scripture says. When God's servants address Christ, one thing they do repeatedly, as it does in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now I've heard the arguments, and I may not trouble you with them, but... Some teach, well, this is just simply talking about logos is, in fact, not the actual presence of God. It is, in a sense, his extension of his person. And the concept that's used there is to take you to the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, where that is used regarding wisdom, which indeed is a part of the person of God and the character of God. But this doesn't end here because it goes on to say in the same thing, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. You'll find the same thing in Ephesians. You'll find it in Colossians. In fact, when the Apostle Paul had to deal with, let's notice what he was dealing with, because sometimes we're not too specific about it, and I don't think we have a basis to always be very specific, but brethren, in Colossia, he was dealing with, beware, this is chapter 2, verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so how did he introduce his writing regarding Christ? Well, you can go back and read in Colossians. It says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Paul did a similar thing in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. As understand, there was a recognition of a spirit world and the concepts that had entered into and used the name of Christ, but were not of Christ. And so, what does Paul start by addressing even to the Hebrew people, Christ was not an angel. And brethren, he does that for the balance of this chapter. He then, at the very end of it, says, regarding the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And then he continues, brethren, and I'm only going to cover into chapter 2, to explain Christ whether Melchizedek, our high priest, whether the fact that as a high priest he's been tempted in all points like as we have been, that there's an understanding because he was flesh and blood. But he was also God in the flesh. The Spirit of God dwelt in him, never departed from him. You know, at the time of the sacrifice, of our sins, God... And he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? Because he accepted our sins. But he was also then resurrected because he was without sin as our Savior and as our Messiah. But as Paul addresses this, he does in chapter 2 then begin to very plainly expound upon Christ. And he begins to then explain that he was not an angel and to confirm what God is doing regarding our salvation. I think there's an interesting statement here that I'd like to point out to you about how this knowledge has grew in the church of God. There are not many times when something is specifically stated, but in this case it says in verse 3 of chapter 2, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? in this statement that when we speak about reality of our salvation, not that there were not certain things known, but Paul said that which we had, they had come to see and understand and what he writes of was first spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. We know from the Scripture that they not only heard him during his ministry, they also heard him having now been resurrected and come back as a witness. And in some cases, the Bible very specifically tells us, explained to his servants all the prophecies that had to do with his first coming. And so it's interesting because then Paul goes on to answer the question, When he says in verse 9, But we see Jesus. Brother, what do we see? Let's read on. Who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. In a way, is expounding the logic of what God was doing. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And he then emphasizes this, saying verse 12, quoting from the Old Testament, I will declare your name to my brethren. You know, I have a brother. We're both flesh and blood. We're brother and I have a sister and we're brothers because we share the parents, mother and father. Christ speaks of us as brethren. Because we share the same Father, our God. When you're begotten, you receive God's Spirit. It's a begettle, the promise of life eternal. It's a vehicle of salvation. It's why, brethren, we should not neglect it. It's why, as we keep God's Day of Pentecost, it's so important we understand the message of 1 John chapter 4, that Christ is living in us what Mr. Meredith understood and explained so often to us in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, how that is accomplished and how it is done, that Christ lives in us, because rather we follow the lead and example of Jesus Christ. We accept the things He taught, the words He gave to us, and the very Spirit that God leads in our life. And so he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praises or praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. Jesus put his very life being dead into the promise of the resurrection. The promise and trust in God, his father, that he would be raised from the grave. And again, here am I the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have been partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. One of the points that Paul is making is Christ was flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels. If you read the margin, it says, take on the nature of. It's very plain because of the na- next statement. He does not give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, that's not the promise that God made. The promise was that the seed of Abraham was the seed of the Messiah. And so what it says in a margin, or take on the seed of Abraham, is exactly the ful- fulfillment of the prophecies and the reality of Jesus Christ. It says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So, Brethren, when we read this in the Scripture, please understand, the depth of what John is addressing. And please understand the clarity that God has given to us. And it has a foundation literally in the birth of Christ, in His flesh and blood. And it's something that scripturally is addressed as we go forward into the new heavens and new earth. That physical identity, the fulfillment of the promises, is a continuing relationship we have with God so it's very important, we understand. It's very inspiring to also realize the God who created man and a woman. And you begin to read about the process of life. One thing I, I found fascinating, because we have, we've had a tremendous increase in knowledge about the birth process, about conception, about how a ch- child is nourished. You know, the blood that goes through the placenta and goes to the child through the umbilical cord, it goes first to the liver. Then it goes to the heart. And it moves into the lungs and provides. But it doesn't, the the lungs don't function, brethren, to breathe. The heart begins to literally take from the, from that process and distribute within the body the oxygen and the nutrients that are needed. There's so much that we know today. That's available to us. You you can, if you have a computer, you can sit down and just, you know, pretend you're going to have a baby. (laughs) Say, I'd like to know what really goes on. And, and how do I protect the life of my baby? And what should I do? And how should I eat? And, and what takes place? But as you read that, realize also our Lord and Savior, the very creator and the giver of life, what He designed and what He created, he then was a partaker of. He became flesh and blood. He was begotten of the Father, just as each of us, as we were baptized and received God's Spirit. We're flesh and blood. And God has begotten us as his children. And what will we be? We see Jesus.